This episode is brought to you by VetTech. VetTech has been manufacturing and distributing the highest level of hoof care products worldwide for nearly 20 years. VetTech's line of hoof-related materials allows hoof care professionals to complete hoof repairs and glue-on shoes with Adhere, as well as create instant shoes and full extensions with Superfast. VetTech's instant pad materials such as Equipack and Equipack CS help to promote heel and sole growth as well as manage thrush, protect and support the foot, and prevent stone bruising. Contact us today to find out more by calling 800-483-8832 or visit our website at www.vettech.com. Welcome to the American Farriers Journal podcast. I'm Jeremy McGovern. What is the most common reason why farrier practices fail? It happens to be the same reason why some practices persist but never truly advance. It's the inability to run a business like a business. I know that few farriers get into horseshoeing because they're drawn to the excitement of scheduling, returning phone calls, or billing. And while the business side can't be ignored in a practice, it doesn't mean you have to devote all your time to it. Dave Farley is a farrier who's figured out how to take control of his business and has managed it that way for decades. And his advice applies to anyone, no matter where you are in your career or what type of horses you shoe. A good portion of this episode delivers some terrific business insight that can help any farrier practice. But don't let that turn you off. Dave has a great way of delivering this information, so don't worry about dozing off if you're behind the wheel and driving into oncoming traffic. By the way, Dave is one of those farriers who spends a considerable amount of time on the road. Moss seldom grows under his feet. We recorded this episode while he was traveling between two of those different locations. Overall, I think Dave is a very interesting and humble guy, beginning with his early days growing up in a small coal mining town to where he is today shoeing some of the top sport horses around the world. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, welcome, Dave. Let me start with the first question. Uh, can you tell us how you, you got your start in the industry? Absolutely. Um, I was born in the early 50s. In 1959, my parents bought me a, a pony. It was a retired mine pony. I'm from the southern Ohio Appalachian area. And uh, that pony took me seven miles to my grandparents' house, sometimes daily. And we had a local farrier who I was fortunate to meet up with. And uh, that gentleman captivated me. And uh, I would stop by the shop as often as I could to see him. And uh, he was also a, uh, a gentleman that sharpened mine tools and mine bits and did a lot of work, not only in horseshoeing, but mainly blacksmithing and took care of the mine ponies. And uh, after that, I was introduced to my first real mentor who had a, a vehicle and did horseshoeing. His name was Fritz Bookman from uh, Booktool, Ohio, and Fritz was uh, very much into um, shoeing correctly and scheduling and was quite the businessman. I was very taken with him and uh, fortunate to meet him. He took me under his wing and uh, really guided me and steered me in the right direction. I'll, I'll be forever grateful for him for that. Let me uh, ask you, you know, your first mentor and then, then Fritz, what what was it about the work that that captivated you? Well, of course, uh, the first gentleman I met, uh, the local gentleman, was in a shop, very dark and dingy shop, and uh, it was a coal mine town, and there was about five coal mines in our town, and it all had ponies and horses and uh, small horses that worked in the groundhog mines, very low ceilings. And uh, he, he was a wonderful blacksmith and, and did a very good job and chewing the, the mine horses, but uh, it was a shop situation. And I, I lived in one of the coal mining hollows uh, called Job's Hollow, and my grandparents lived in the town where he was, and that was pretty much my life uh, for the first five years. I, I'd never been out of that area like a lot of local people. So when I met Fritz, Fritz actually had a, a truck and had chewing equipment in the truck and would travel from farm to farm and did uh, a more, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, more professional type of a horse. You know, horses that, that were 
used for some of the trail riding uh, in the area. We had a fortune to live on the Buckeye Trail, which is a trail that crisscrosses Ohio from Lake Erie to the Ohio River and from Indiana to West Virginia, Pennsylvania line. So Fritz traveled that local area and did the, the good farm horses and, and a few show horses that was in that area and was a, a real businessman. I could, as, as I sit and think about traveling with him, I, I could I could still see his routine. We would talk and chat about life and business, and as soon as we would pull up to a farm, he would take his watch off and hang it on this, the gear shift of his three-in-the-tree pickup truck, and we would get out, put the aprons on, and go to work. It was uh, quite the memory. He was my ticket out of the area. Uh, my exposure that there was, uh, the world didn't uh, didn't uh, fall off at our county line, so to say. He was a very worldly guy, very well-educated, and uh, a very, very good businessman and still a friend of mine today. So he, he opened up the world to me up until that point. That was, uh, I was pretty limited to my travels and life and where I've been. But after that, uh, everything started to open up. Yeah, it's, it's been quite a journey from, you know, small, small coal mining area where you have very little, you know, means to get out of that area. And I think it's interesting then what you transitioned to. What what were those horses once you, he kind of gave you that, that bigger view, what were the types of horses you began to work with? Mostly quarter horses. Um, there was a large breeding uh, area. Uh, the, the farmers in the area all seemed to have a few brood bears, and they got into the barrel racing and, and trail riding and western pleasure. Um, there was no such thing as raining back then. Um, very, very, very small shows, mostly local shows. This was pre-Quarter Horse Congress. This was pre-World Show. Quite a quite a long time ago, we did have a few walking type red horses, saddle saddle horse for red horses that were in the area also, and he he also shot those type of horses. When did you make the uh, transition to sport horses? Well, shortly after that, I had heard about this gentleman from Cincinnati, Ohio, by the name of, of Frank McGinnis, and his father, Johnny McGinnis. Uh, there was uh, other fine farriers in the area also, but our, uh, our, our circle of farriers that were uh, a little bit more modern always referred to Frank. He was uh, head of the industry and uh, very much into uh, mechanicalism, uh, organization, uh, a very good businessman, communicated well with his clients, and I looked forward to, to meeting Frank for several years. And once I, I did meet him, I started to travel down there to spend time with him. And he was, uh, again, uh, I think felt sorry for the poor country boy and put me in and uh, opened up a whole world of, of fox hunters and city life and uh, a fancy truck with a forge and an anvil and a vice and shoes that were, that were pre-made and pre-punched in his basement. Uh, it was like, he was like the Willy Wonka. <laughs> of the farrier industry. <laughs> yeah, I think that the reason I asked and, and brought up sport horses pretty early is, you know, I think people can probably tell you're not in the studio right now. You're you're uh, heading from one place to the other, uh, you know, from Ocala down to Wellington, and that's that's sort of the life. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that later. Uh, I guess continuing on with with those early years. You know, what what were some of the things that drew you to working with those types of horses and, and moving from the quarter horses? Well, the quarter horses were a, a staple up until the the early 80s for me, but and I loved them. I owned them myself. My family was uh, early on involved in, through the 60s and 70s in the quarter horse racing. Love the breed, still love the breed today. Uh, however, in, in those days, uh, being a an Ohio guy, I couldn't quite get the money that I wanted, and uh, I I have found Frank McGinnis, who was the type of person that I wanted to be. He shot the type of horses. He had the clients that I wanted. He had a balance in his life. He Frank was very much into. Uh, he liked to go to the track and to see the 
racehorses. He also liked to scuba dive. He was quite worldly, and uh, he was more than a mentor. He was that that type of person I wanted to emulate, and, and he had told me also to try to get yourself in a position where you can be around people that you would like to be, people that, that inspire you and, uh, and have goals and ambitions, sets goals, reaches goals. And uh, he was just a, a, quite the innovator in the horse uh, area in Cincinnati, Ohio. And so many farriers looked up to him, Mr. Orville Atkins. I was introduced to him, several of the farriers in the area that Frank had actually built machinery for them and built their trucks mechanicalized trucks that you would hit a button and everything would roll out. It was, it was quite fascinating. So Frank was doing, as I said, all the, the fox hunters and the, and, the, and the hunt horses in that area and the, and the jumpers. Um, he worked on a very famous horse by the name of Jay Trump. I'm blessed. I still have a set of Jay Trump shoes, a horse, one of the first horses that went to Europe from the United States and competed and did very, very well. Uh, the Linear family has been quite involved in horses for years, and I still get to see some of them in Wellington. So I wanted to be that that type of a person, and, uh, and that led me to starting to switch over to those type of horses. Yeah, Going back to one of those lessons he really stressed on that balance, you know, that that's incredibly diff- difficult, uh, especially for the younger person, the, the person who, who's trying to establish a business. Over the years, what, what were your paths to success for building that balance between work and, and life? Well, I'm, I'm a person that's going to tell everybody to do as I say, not as I do. I'm as guilty <laughs> as most farriers. <laughs> um, in, the, in the early quarter horse years, I, I traveled as much as I, I, I did after I got onto the show circuit. I didn't I didn't travel across the oceans like I did the last decade or so, but I did follow the larger shows, uh, the quarter horse Western world. And, uh, I think it was toward the end of that, uh, the uh, late seventies, early eighties, um, you know, we started to have kids and, and I, I, I just have these flashbacks to Mr. McGinnis who, who said, you have to have a balance and, and you, you've chosen what you want to do. At that point, I started to replan things and rethink things. Uh, but like most farriers, it took a few years for me to figure out how to do it. Um, and I've been blessed with great clients and great horses and uh, been able to, to work it to where uh, I have everything on a, on a, on a schedule. Uh, I, don't, I don't wait for the phone to ring. When I'm at a barn, I schedule the next appointment. And we pretty much stick to it. Like like anyone in the sport horse industry, once you get into this, you do have a lot of emergencies that pop up that you have to take care of that. But if you plan well, you can take care of your emergencies as well as your personal life. And I think planning is something that we've left out of this industry. We, we, we focus so much on skill and, and a few other things that we forget about the balance. And the farriers that have worked with me through the years, you know, that ride with me also, today, I encourage that, and I, and I make sure that they're aware that this industry can consume you, it can, it can capture you, it can suck you in, and it will take the life away from you, your personal life, your family life, your hobbies, because you get sucked into it so hard that uh, you think that you have to be there 724. So I try to teach that it is what we make it, if we let it consume us, it will. We can plan it any way we want as long as we're open and good communicators with our clients. We, we make them understand that we're, we're a business-type person also, and that we set a schedule, and we try to stick to that. So I've been a big supporter of the farrier industry from the start, from the early 80s, late 70s, and, uh, and I have a, a, a huge desire to help change it in, in positive ways so that we can get the balance back into life and prove to the equine industry that, that we are the, the equine hoof care maintenance experts of the world. So I think that all fall, falls into it, the, having the balance in our life. Yeah, I think you, there's a few ways you've been successful in doing that and in, in helping promote the industry and, and change public perception of the industry. 
But but going back to one of the things you've talked about, you're well regarded in the industry as a business person, and I think a lot of the practices I've I've heard over the years people have adapted. And I one particularly interesting to me is that that you you're sort of mandatory in that you dictate the rules of your practice. You're not you're not uh, uh, rude to a client, but you you're very direct in, on what your expectations are for the client and what their expectations of you should be. Can, can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, two, two of my very special clients that I had years ago, Mr. Truman, who was a client that had uh, a very good business. Uh, he owned a hotel chain called Red Roof Inns and later uh, True Sports and a race driver, Bobby Ray Hall. And then uh, Mr. John Paxton, who is still a friend today. Both these guys were very successful business people, and they, just being around them, uh, the osmosis of being around them and, and being able to talk to them on a daily basis and just let them guide me, uh, they, they pretty much told me I was a terrible business person, that, that a business, a sole proprietorship business, can be trained and planned any way we want it to be. But you have to communicate your plan and your desires to your clients, your owners. So that's where I felt that we were lacking and the industry still lacks. As soon as I adopted some of their traits, my business did a, a 180 turnaround, 180 degree turnaround, just amazing. And I've, I've ran my business like that the last 20 years. And through a, a, a rather large multi-barrier practice in Cincinnati, Ohio, to what I have today. It's a, it's a very well-oiled machine. I'm very proud of it. And I'm not saying it's, it's a perfect business, but it's the best business that I've ever had. Uh, we still have the day-to-day emergencies of a shoe off occasionally or a pre-purchase exams. Tuesdays, I'm, I'm like the other farriers in the area. We're at the FEI tent. Tuesdays are kind of blocked off. My guys continue to work. Um, so yeah, I, I believe that my association with Mr. John Paxton and, um, and some other business people really changed the way I ran my business. I, I realized at that time that, uh, planning in a bent over position with my head between my knees wasn't, well, wasn't good enough. I had to go home and use my brain to change the way that I had let my business run me. And I had to start to take charge of my business and run it. What What were some of the mechanisms or, or tactics that you used to help turn around your business? Uh, simple communication through a newsletter was the best thing that I ever done. Um, early on, it was brought to me to my attention that uh, when I would wait a couple years to go up on prices, I was already losing profit. And again, I go back to Mr. Truman and. And Mr. Paxton, who said, you're not even keeping up with the cost of living. And and how much do your supplies go up every year? I'd never thought of that. So I've been blessed to, to be a part of several manufacturers. And, and I approached them and asked them, you know, what are the what are the factors in our, our tools and shoes and nails that we use? They said steel. Steel governs our industry. Those prices go up every year. So with that suggestion, I, I looked at the average price of steel that it goes up every year, and I looked at the cost of living geographically to where I was living at, and anyone can find that online now. I had to do a lot of research back in the late 70s, early 80s. But once you find out what your cost of living goes up and your, your price of your steel and your supplies go up, that's pretty simple to at least raise your prices that much to stay at a break-even point. The business practices that you use and, and that you've been able to utilize to turn your business around, are those completely transferable across all disciplines, such as, you know, today you're, you're working with higher-end sport horses, but say that person who's working uh, backyard horses, and is, is this something, like I said, like I asked, is it okay across all disciplines and all regions? Absolutely. The backyard person, let's say the, the, you're dealing with a family that has two horses, a husband and wife, 
and they have a factory job or whatever, uh, they still have the same the same living conditions that any horse would have. They still have to feed it. They still have to buy it hay. Uh, they still make a living. Um, yes, their cost of living goes up in that area, no matter where it is geographically. The prices still go up every year. And if, and if you don't at least go up that much, you're not breaking even. Going up to just keep up with the cost of living and your 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 percentage of your material increase uh, is only going to keep you at the profit margin that you are. It doesn't increase your profit margin that much. And that's the advice that I had got from one of my my clients and mentors was you at least have to educate your client that by going up just to keep up with the cost of living and the cost of your materials isn't increasing your profit. So if you educate your client to just that much, they'll accept a raise every year, no matter who they are. Going back to your point about mentors, if you're searching for mentors, if you know those people who can make you better or the people you want to emulate, early on, how do you how do you identify those people? What were some ways that that are good ways for finding those people and making sure you pair up well? First of all, our industry hasn't been trained to or taught to accept uh, mentors and mentorships as of yet. I'm doing everything I can with, with being involved with the AAPF, IAPF to change that. We have a mentoring mentorship program. Uh, I was mentored not only by Mr. McGinnis and Mr. Bookman, but in the business life of my clients, I was mentored by business people and taught that you want to find somebody that has what you would like to achieve and and make sure that it's a person that is willing to take you on as a mentee, but it also has a few qualities. And that's the thing I think our industry lacks. We want to find someone that has the quality of life that we would like to have, that has the attitude that we would like to have, that has the, the business success and business sense that we would like to have, then to be able to get that person to accept you. And it doesn't have to be a day-to-day thing. I, I still contact my mentors occasionally. Um, it's, it's a lifetime friendship that you make. It's somebody that you can call on for advice uh, or, or to, to get involved with on different levels. So as a young farrier right now, this is an amazing time in history to be a young farrier. I believe it is the greatest time in history to be a young farrier. Uh, in this transition of, of new communications and social networking and the availability of, of uh, good knowledge that you can get a hold of is changing so fast that some, some of the younger people are almost becoming uh, I don't want this to sound wrong, but they, they, they want everything now. They become, it's become a demand, and you see it on social network. They'll post a question, and they want an answer right now. They don't want any BS. They want to they get to the end as fast as they can. So it's a wonderful time to be a young farrier um, in any area, in any discipline, in any breed. But the one thing that they're going to miss, I think, I think education has been accelerated, with social network and with the better schooling and all. But the one thing that we don't have is there is no shortcuts to experience anywhere in our industry. There are no shortcuts to experience. So even though they can gain the knowledge, they can find the answers that they want, they have to be a bit patient when it comes to that experience and try to find that mentor that uh, has those qualities that I've mentioned before. Yeah, patience is a tough thing, and, I, and maybe in some ways, it's it's always a lack of patience is always a tough thing for young people. And then I think even as we get older, it's tough to manage. Absolutely, absolutely. Our patience should get better as we get older, but I think some of us that get older, uh, speaking for myself, anyways, the older I get, the more I find out that I don't know. I wish I had the knowledge that I mind today. I wish I would have had it 10, 15, 20 years ago, but I, I sometimes myself get a little impatient because I'm thinking I've only got another 10 years or 15 years or whatever, and I'm just getting that spark of energy again, but I only have a limited amount of time to spread what little I know 
to as many people as I can. Yeah, I think that's something that people can see about you is that that ability to interact with young people, the ability to share information. It, 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 uh, I think it's hard to find you in a down state. You you always seem to, to be energized by that, that willingness to share information. Well, I had wonderful parents who were great teachers. I had wonderful grandparents. Uh, we were we were the wealthiest kids in the world in, in love and support and enthusiasm, work ethic. Uh, had very little financially, but we had no idea we, we, we didn't have it. So I think my upbringing with my parents, who I'm blessed to say are still alive today, and they're still my biggest fans, uh, it's hard not to be energetic and enthusiastic when you're, when you're raised in that environment and to be appreciative, to say thank you. Yes, man. No, sir. Um, it, it's hard not to, to be a, a, a very blessed person. Yeah, and I think growing up in a certain environment and you're unaware that you're, you may not be the wealthiest in terms financially, to not be exposed to that, it's a blessing to, to more or less get integrated directly into hard work and appreciation of hard work, uh, appreciation for family and, and so on. It, it's a nice thing to miss those jealousies early on. Yes, and, and I'm very proud to say that I wouldn't change a thing in my life. Not, not a single day I would, would want to take back. If I could do it all over again, I would do it exactly the same. I have no regrets. I've met so many great people, and there are so many fine farriers who are my age and older that are still around who are a wealth of knowledge that uh, I, I hope you can get to, Jeremy, and, and get them to share what little they have because they'll soon be gone. And as I said before, those of us who learn from experience alone because we didn't have the open book uh, that is available today, it was a different era. Today, there are so many shortcuts to absolutely everything with the exception of one thing, and that's experience. So any of these fine uh, men and women that are around in this industry who have that experience that are still willing and able to help, I, I encourage all young farriers or anyone to get close to these guys. Uh, go go to the summit, go to your function where you gather these people to share everything that they have. Um, it's We're losing them every day. And it, once we get to, or once I get to my age and other people get to our age, we start to lose those people. We, we wish we had more time. So I encourage everybody that is a, a person that's been in this business 10, 20 years or younger to seek out those people and shake their hand in the hallway and you may be surprised what you can learn in 10 or 15 minutes from them. Sure, and I, th I think a thing to add on to that, regardless of what venue you go to, I find the people in this industry, you know, we'll, we'll say the, the big names, the people you may want to talk to if you're a young fairy or listening, uh, go up to these people, they're approachable, don't be intimidated because you've read their name or heard their name mentioned or have seen, seen them compete or whatever the case may be is, is uh, I think you'll find the people, the leaders in this industry are also among the most accessible. Well, that's a, that's a really big misconception. I've had people that, that have approached me and said, I I saw you speak before, but I didn't want to bother you. Please bother me. Please bother us. I, I've done a lot of traveling with Roy Bloom, and, and we look for that person that, that, that their eyes are open and they have a question they want to ask. We approach that person. So don't hesitate to ask a person a question. Uh, but I'll, I'll be honest with you, there may be somebody that you ask a question that they are not willing to share their knowledge, or they may not think that they can can teach. There's a lot of farriers out there that are great farriers and believe they can't teach, but a, a, a five-minute talk in a hallway or, or have, have a breakfast or, or, or meet somewhere you'll be surprised how they'll open up and the knowledge just flows out of them effortlessly. It'll save you so much time and energy uh, with your career to get to know these people. And what a better place than one of the, the national functions 
Uh, of course, I referred to the summit or, or the AFA convention where these people are there. And if they're a good person and willing to share their knowledge, they'll talk to you. If it's a person that doesn't have a good attitude, what's the worst that can happen? They say, I don't have time. Don't let that discourage you either. Go seek out the person that will give you a little bit of their time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, as I mentioned before, you're you're driving you on you're on your way from Ocala to Wellington, and I bet if I asked you to name people who were influential in your career, you could not only drive to Wellington, but you could probably drive back to Ocala and not run out of names. <laughs> but you you've mentioned some. You just mentioned Roy. Who who are some? And and I know you'll you'll feel bad thinking you might leave somebody out. Uh, but who are some of the the people who've really helped your career? Well, you know, everyone that's going to listen to this podcast who knows me, who I have met, who has rode in my truck or I have rode in their truck, I want to thank you because you're the ones that that I give credit to. I can't name the names. I've been blessed to be around a long time. I've traveled a lot. I've, I've been blessed to be asked to share what little knowledge I have. But I also love to go listen to other people also. And when, when you, you do some of these functions like your own, where there's a speaker-ready room or an area around the stage where everyone gathers, you know, I, I go back to, to Mr. Daniels and Bob Marshall and, and a lot of, a lot of, there's just too many to mention. And sadly, some of them are gone. But there was the local guys too, as I said before, Orville Atkins and Frank McGinnis and Bob Peacock. Who's, who's still around, but he's not shooing any longer. He was an innovator, the first person to, in, to and not invent, but to uh, market an ergonomically correct hammer handle to make it easier on your wrist. There's just so many people. Of course, I, I still get to visit and see some of the, the people that I do seminars with, but I miss Eddie Watson. I miss Emil Perret, a, a lot of the Europeans that, are, that have gone. Mr. Edward Martin, I was so blessed to, to meet and know and visit him and uh and he visited me also what a what a wealth of knowledge what a great person with a great attitude a big heart willing to share everything a great blacksmith a good farrier yeah there's just so many so many but there's still a lot around today there's i can't say enough about my good friend roy bloom and i and i hope that you you pick his brain as much as you can uh, a wealth of knowledge of, in so many different areas that we still shoe horses together today. We may go off in different directions as we get older into manufacturing and, and uh, you know, hooking up with the manufacturers of shoes and nails and different products, but we still, our common denominator of all of us is shoeing horses, and we love it. I, I'm very blessed to have a, a couple fine gentlemen with me this from California right now. I have an old friend from 30 years ago, Harry Sirio, that's visiting next week. I, I, I try to keep very, very active and, uh, and surround myself with energy and young people. It keeps me alive, keeps me enthused, and uh, it completes me. When you have those people ride with you, uh, you're, you're very open to it. What, what are your expectations for so someone listening out there, whether they ride with you or someone else, you know, how should they approach the day? Well, first of all, it, it really hurts me when I have to say no to somebody. And, and it's not because I'm better than anyone else. It's just because I've made my, my life, my shoeing business and my truck open to people. Um, I've had so many come that I have to start treating the passenger seat of my truck like my business. It has to be scheduled. And I feel really bad for the people who call me and say, hey, I'm coming down tomorrow to ride with you. It just can't happen that way. We schedule it a year ahead of time. So, and when someone asks if they can ride, I said, absolutely, you can ride, but you may have to wait a while. But when you come, I want you to bring an apron. I want you to bring a camera. And I want you to bring a notepad. And I found out through the years that if you ask them to be very observant that day, I want you to be quiet. I want you to be well-mannered. You're going to be around um, people who, who want to express their questions. They're my clients. I want you to, to be very open-minded to see how we handle this situation. Be quiet, and every time you have a question, 
write it down in your notepad. And most people will write between 30 and 60 questions, sometimes more during the day. And I encourage them to take pictures, but ask first before you take pictures. And then at the end of the day, we'll answer all the questions. And the unique thing about that is, is they do write their questions down. And sometimes at the end of the day, they have a couple questions left. But most of the time, because they were observant and quiet, all the answers were were brought to them without having to ask me later. They're quiet enough. They're, they're well-tempered. Uh, they listen and look at what's happening. And the question that they asked was answered in their own eyes and their own ears during the, the day of business. So it's a very unique situation when you uh, when you have to wait. It's brought up, and I think when, when I asked that person, that barrier or veterinarian to write that question down, it makes a very big imprint in their mind, and it's, 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 it's really burned in there. But when they see it being answered themselves during the day, it'll last far longer than me stopping, standing up, and giving them a question or, or an answer. I think it's better if they hold off and just wait till the end of the day. It's, it's, uh, it's, very, it's worked out very well for me to do it that way. Yeah, I think it works out well. You, you certainly you have a high volume of work to go through, and if they have 40, 50, 60 questions to go through, I can't imagine you getting through your day of shoeing. <laughs> exactly. That's that's the deal. And they always have a question, how can I make more money, and how can I get clients like you have? That's the two uh, basic questions that they want. And that's the ones that I put off. If they're writing with me one day, it's at the end of the day before I answer those. And I do have answers. If they're writing with me two days, I tell them we won't answer that until the end. And those are the two questions that they figure out really quick. Because it's not just the skill, because I don't consider myself as skilled as half of the industry. But it's that, it's that balance of skill, communication, business, and horsemanship. And you combine those four things with a good attitude and an open mind, um, those questions are all answered. They see it. They see it working. They understand then with the communication that I have with my clients at the end of their day or the end of their two days um, how to get to that, that type of a client. I'll switch gears. I'll, I'll go back to a, uh, something you, you had brought up. Uh, the AAPF, the IEPF, and here we are. Time has flown since the start of the group. Can you talk a little bit about you know where you started and, and how far the group has come in just a few short years? Oh, my gosh. I When I talk about this association, I, it's like talking about one of my children. I'm very proud of it. And the, the group of us that were founding board members, uh, we just wanted to be different. We wanted to get to everybody that's interested in hoof care maintenance. We wanted to support the associations that were already there, uh, and we do continue to support them. We really believed at that point that it was about CE, and that's being proven every day now. There are so many functions going on, uh, and we want we think there's value in all of them. We have a, a, a committee that looks at every function that's out there, and if you submit an application, we, we give CE to that. It, it just went to great lengths. We're soon approaching 900, and, and I believe we'll be at 1,000 by the end of the year in our membership. We've come up with a credentialing program uh, with our foundation that uh, is an open book test that uh, we've got hundreds out there already. It's very well received. Mr. Bob Smith, another one of our early members, I can't give him enough credit for what he's done and supported it. With, uh, with a lot of his knowledge and, and books that he already has for his school. Uh, the people that are still involved with it, the unique thing about our association is that we've attracted a, a very good group of people who really have some of that basic attitude that I have. You hang with people that you want to be like. And uh, the cool thing about it is, is the people that are on board and on our board, once they are out of office, they still stay involved. They're still on committees. They're still on on a, on a task committee. We're still getting things done. 
when, when you get involved with people like that who are givers, uh, they want to continue going. It's, it's, it's a lot of respect that you have for each other. You have similar goals. You have uh, a great ambition. Uh, we have a, a, an amazing uh, program and plan for our future. Like I said, it's like talking about a child. I can't say enough about it. We, we encapsulate the entire industry. We support the entire industry, every association. And we, we have attracted a large group of educational partners who are amazing people. They got involved with us early. We want to see more really good, credible CE events that have a certain uh, base of uh, goals. They want to be able to hear and see the clinic. They may want to take notes. They may they want it in an environment where the entire audience can see, rather than just a few that are gathered around, you know, a horse or an animal. So our educational partners, once they got involved, we can do more on our own. Uh, we started, you know, five or six years ago as a little group meeting in Lexington, Kentucky, and. Uh, as would have it, this September we're going back there for our mid-year board meeting to Breeders' Supply uh, and going to stay in the same hotel where it all started. So in, in a few short years, we've came a long, long way, uh, but we've only started. And let, let me ask you about one of those big developments, and uh, that's credentialing. And that, that was one of your early goals, and now you, you guys are seeing, seeing that emerge. Um, and maybe there's still maybe misconceptions about it, and uh, but people may hear you say it's an open book exam and say, well, that sounds simple, but that's not the case. Well, no, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a fine example of that. Um, everyone thinks that I have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I, I'm not the best at anything, but when we first developed the test, I was not for an open book personally, and I said, well, that's kind of cheating. I said, anyone can, anyone that has any basic knowledge can do that. And I puffed my chest out a little bit, and I said, give me the test, and I'll prove it. Well, I was never so embarrassed <laughs> in my life, I don't think, is to go through that and not open the book and to take the test and had the attitude that I knew it all. I flunked it terribly, terribly. It was embarrassing. So uh, <laughs> the proof was in just going back and read what you think you know, because you never know it all. It's impossible to know it all. So what an amazing value that book is to go through that book. Uh, again, I, I, I want to mention Bob Smith because he put so much time and effort into that book. What an amazing thing to be able to go back and go through it and just start slapping yourself in the forehead saying, oh, I wish I would have read the book first. Of course I know that answer. Yeah, an open book, what we're doing is not new. It's been done for years. It's still being done in, in most educational um, businesses and even the medical industry. Uh, open book is nothing new. Sadly, it's a new concept to the farrier industry, so there are a lot of people who don't agree with it. But uh, I, I think they'll see the value in it. We see the value in every test and every certification and every competition. And uh, we just think that our open book test has just as much value or more. And I challenge everybody to, to prove us wrong. And it's only the foundation. It's only the foundation. We're, we're getting into the disciplines. And when people see the list of disciplines, I don't want to elaborate on that, but when they'll see the list of disciplines, it will in include almost everybody in the industry in one or more of those disciplines. Since you brought up disciplines, let me ask you about something we've, we've talked about before and, and has been part of your lectures, is knowing the difference between of what you're shooing and, and in specifically, we're getting down into sport horses and knowing the difference whether it's a fox hunter or show jumper, knowing the differences of, of what you're doing and, and what goes on in the competitions and understanding that. Can, can you talk about that? Well, I give credit to every discipline that there is because I've, I've shot quite a few disciplines, and I don't, I don't think there is any such thing as an easy discipline. I give credit to every farrier out there who, who, uh, who applies a shoe or trims a foot flat and level every single day. 
I don't think one discipline deserves more credit than the other. I, I improve. If I, if I can shoe the caliber of horses that I'm shoeing, anybody can. I just want everyone to make sure that they understand what is involved in that discipline before it gets started. It's very in-depth. Certain, certain disciplines, it takes more than the skill and the communication. You have to have patience. You have to be willing to sacrifice. Every discipline that, that we're going to include and that we're going to, to instruct a, a person uh, of any level how to better themselves, it's, that is not the end-all, do-all. You're still going to have to incorporate experience with what we teach you to go on into your business. If somebody wants to learn more about a discipline, what advice do you have to the degree that you're recommending? Well, as far as eschewing uh, a certain discipline, find a person who has already had success at that discipline. Study as much as you can. Do your research as much as you can. But the real shortcut is to find a mentor in that discipline who has had some success, who knows a lot uh, already that will keep you or limit your failures. Uh, because there's going to be failures in all aspects of the farrier industry. You want to you limit your failures as much as you can. So why not hook up with somebody who has already had success so that you'll limit as many negative experiences as you can. Because once you get into being breed specific in the farrier world and you, you reach uh, a level that you think you want to be, you have to remember, no matter how successful you are, they'll only remember your mistakes. So they'll only remember the horse that you couldn't get sound or that you may have cut a little sore or that you may have got a close nail on. That's, that's where you'll be remembered. So you want to eliminate as many, as much of the education as you can, do it somewhere else before you get specific and you're under the firing line. Once you get to that level and you're like me and you're going to the FBI tent on Tuesdays for the jogs, that's not where you want to have to scratch your head for an answer or where you want to get a close snail there. You, you really want to have as many of those experiences under your belt before you reach that level, no matter what discipline it is. How can you overcome that once you do make those mistakes? I think among any discipline, it's the same. The horse world is fairly small, and it doesn't matter what level you're on. What can you do to help overcome that, to, to uh, uh, continue to build a good reputation versus fair or unfair critiques? Well, the one thing that I've done that's helped me through the years is I, I communicate with my clients from day one and tell them that, that I am just a human being. I continue my education. I study my craft. I hang with the great people that, that, are already, that have already had success. But I am human, and I will make a mistake. And, and when it does happen, I'll stand behind my work, and I'll correct it. And to this day, things still do happen. And when something does happen, you have to own that mistake. You have to correct that mistake so that you you have uh, substance and credibility to that client. And if you do that, even though it was a negative uh, notch in your belt, you'll come away a winner if you're very open, honest, and willing to help fix whatever that mistake was. I'm still human. I'm sure I'm still going to make mistakes. It's happened in every breed and discipline that I've shot horses in. But I've always tried to own every one of them and correct them. And uh, I'm blessed to still have some of the same customers that I had 25, 30 years ago where I did make those mistakes. And whether we're talking about mistakes or, as we all know, there's cases where you a client will quote unquote fire you for for maybe no good reason at all how do you handle those situations you know once a, a client decides to go with a different farrier well that that is a that is a regular thing that happens uh, clients have access to the internet as much as we do and sometimes the clients fall for the smoke and mirrors and there's a lot of barriers out there and trainers and the equine industry is full of very boastful people who claim they are the, the end-all, do-all person. So that's going to happen. You're going to lose clients. When you do 
find yourself in a situation where you're on the losing end, you have to have that good attitude. You have to have a, a willingness to be able to communicate with that person and say, if anything changes in the future and I can ever be of any service to you, again, please let me know what I can do to to start up another relationship. And uh, I, I'm living proof of that. I, I, I had a business that I walked away from in Cincinnati, Ohio. I gave to my employees. It didn't go so well. Some of the clients were, were not happy with the people that were left, but they, they understood that I was moving on. Those people came back, and I still shoot for those people today during the winter. So clients come and go, but you want them to come and go on a good note, on a good positive attitude, honesty, and willingness to work with them. And as you talked about your, your practice before, you know, you, you have this multifarrier practice. What what do you see are the, you know, there's, there's some distinct advantages, but if somebody's out there considering developing a multifarrier practice or taking on help or, you know, there's varied degrees of this, what, what advice do you have? What are some things they need to consider that, that could help them avoid mistakes in, in doing a multifarrier practice? Oh, I, I personally believe there's more advantages to multifarrier practice than there is disadvantages. And I, I feel bad for the guys who are sole proprietors who don't have any support or help at all. Because that person that is a, a single gunslinger, uh, when he gets shot, he has no one to back him up. So the farrier's in the same boat. He gets hurt. He gets his foot stepped on or a broken hand. He has to rely on his allies and his friends that are close by or or maybe hundreds of miles away to help him. If you are a sole proprietor and you take on an associate that is going to go with you in everyday work and pull and clench for you alone, that takes 50% of the physical wear and tear off of your body, 50%. So it also increases your work up to 50%. So if you hire an associate and, and you, you become a, a partner with somebody, you can do the same, in the same amount of hours, if you learn to organize yourself, you can double your work in the same amount of hours with the same amount of labor. Now, if you still want to shoot six horses a day with that labor, you're going to get done half as fast if you know how to organize yourself. The benefit is when you, another benefit is when you get hurt, you have a person that can continue on with your, your work, your, your income continues to come in, or you want to take a vacation where you, the person used to have to double up on his work before a vacation and then double up again on it when he comes back. If you're half a businessman and you have a little bit of planning skills or available to get on the internet to learn how to do this or work with a mentor, you can take your vacations and come back and the work is continued on, especially the emergencies. There's nothing better for your, a business than to be able to service it while you're gone. So, and that's just a basic sole proprietor with an associate. You, you go on to a full-time employee and that associate turns into a, a co-worker or a business partner and he can have a horse and he can do as much as you're doing, then you need someone that can pull and clinch for the two of you. It can, it can grow and grow and grow. But the, the most important thing is to just stop and think that if you're a sole proprietor and you're shooing five or six horses a day and you're out there eight or nine or ten hours a day to accomplish that work. If you would go up on your prices and hire an associate and do one more horse a day, you could go home about one-third faster, do better work because you're focusing on the trim, you're focusing on your communication, you don't have to pull and clench, you're, this person's now set up your truck, he's now putting your truck back together again from one stop to the other. And the person that runs the business, that owns the person's the business, he can focus on his specific job and get much better at it. So I think there's much more benefits in having a multi-barrier practice for for an associate work with you than there is to not. And and I think it will become more and more. It's I've seen the numbers really jump in the last ten years. 
and I, I really hope that it increases and the momentum keeps at least that pace or more because it's so much more beneficial. My clients love me to bring extra people. They love that. They accept anyone that goes with me, that they're an equal to me, that they can do the work because I don't treat my associates or anyone that works with me as a negative. I think when you use the word helper or apprentice in front of your clients, you immediately put them below you and your client will never accept it. And there are some older farriers who, who really believe it and they're not going to change and they're not going to stop calling the, the, the farriers that work with them helpers or apprentices. I think those are negative words. I've known people that have met someone that they knew 30 or 40 years ago and they'll still say, oh, I remember you. You were so-and-so's helper. So remember that when you get into a business and you you want to expand be very fair to the people that work with you and don't don't put them don't introduce them with a negative word that will stick with them forever it's, it's the first uh, the first meeting of a person establishes their view of that person for the rest of their life that's why I just do not like the word helper or apprentice Besides the, that terminology of, of helper and apprentice and avoiding that, how, how do you help build that confidence with your clients that the people, your associates, are qualified and, and that the client should have as much trust in them as they, they do with you? You know, Jeremy, it probably, it probably goes back to my communication with my clients. They know that I'm very involved in the industry and I love this industry. Uh, with my entire heart. They know that I'm a teacher. In the back of their minds, they may accept that that person does not have as much experience as I do, but they know that I am a teacher and that I give to that person. I think they pretty much accept that I would not let them do anything that they weren't qualified to do. But I think I have earned that through communication and by having people with me that do more than just pull and clinch. They see them being very active in our business. Uh, my son, for one, does not nail and clinch every day. He pulls and clinches. Rarely does he nail. If he has to, he'll, he'll nail. But he doesn't want to. We are very organized. We have a partnership. and. The people that have been with me understand that, and my clients understand that. However, they accept him as, as an equal to me, and they know that if, he, if I want him to, that he will do that. So, again, I think it goes back to the communication with your clients. If they accept the people that are with you as equal to you, they don't have an issue with it. Our clients love us to be on schedule. They like to know that we're showing up at a certain time. They really don't pay that much attention to who is doing each job. They just want their horses to be sound and to win when we leave the barn, and they accept everyone. When you talk about the organization, your, your workflow with your, your team, what advice do you have for building that or, or analyzing how you're working with the other farriers in your practice and improving on that? Well, the more people you have, the more people can be job specific for that day or that barn or that week. And I think when you do one job in repetition, you get very, very good at that job. To me, in my business, and I think you'll find out in most older farriers, they know that the trim is the most important. If, if, you, if you know how to properly trim a foot that will complement that leg and com complement that horse, that's the best thing that you can do that day. I think after a proper trim, you can nail a coal shovel on it. It can still function very well. So I focus on the trims and the farriers that ride with me that have the most experience are also trimming. And my clients accept them as, as, uh, as doing that job. So our, our the people that are trimming are doing that job. The other people are setting up the rig or tearing it down they're, they're doing shoe preparation. Shoe preparation is huge for us because there's so much that goes into that, not only the shoe selection, but the mechanics that are going on to that shoe. The person that takes that shoe off 
either does it himself or passes it on to the next person who has to pay a lot of attention to that, that shoe, that pad, that packing, the package itself. They have to pay attention to the shoe wear, the mechanics that was on it, as well as the, the traction uh, and where that traction is applied to that shoe. And they have to pay attention to, to the size and the thickness of that shoe, the weight. So there's a lot to that job. And the whole time this is going on, there's record keeping going on. There's notes being made on that horse. Did he come out sore? Did he jog uh, a little off one way or on a short circle? Did somebody mention that the horse stumbles? Uh, a lot of amateur horses stumble, so we have to do what we can to help them. It's not all just putting the same shoe on every horse. Every horse has a different application. Everybody that's in that truck has a different job. And we're so organized, we can switch people with those jobs to keep it happy and keep it uh, keep it exciting for everybody. No matter what level you are, if you get involved in somebody that has a routine, you'll find out you're going to learn a lot working out of somebody else's truck. Yeah. Uh, so when you're you're developing that routine and, you, you know, you mentioned the, the farrier who you have somebody pulling shoes and then, then you want them to, in a management case, uh, maintain those, the mechanics, wh- whatever you had set up if you're setting it up for the next time. When you do encounter those those needs for change, like say you get feedback from a rider or trainer saying there's just something a little off or that, how, how will you switch up those roles, you know, and, and decide on what, for instance, if you need to make a, a different modification to the shoe to adjust that need, how will you manage that? Well, and it happens daily. We'll, we'll, uh, we have a, a, a series of, of checks and balances. Uh, if, if we get a suggestion or ask to make a change on a horse, Let's, let's say we have a, a jumper and it's a big jumper and they've decided to make it an neck horse, an equitation horse. They're going to take it out of aluminum and put it into steel. That's a big change for that horse. I may, I may not trust the one person that brought me the horse. Maybe it's a groom or maybe it's an assistant trainer. Our checks and balances are that one of us in our team will go make sure we contact the, the trainer or the owner. We don't see our owners that much, but... We'll double-check with someone before we make a big change like that. Because you're talking about taking a horse out of aluminum that has a little weight or a poly shoe, you're putting him in steel, and he, now he needs to be drilled and tapped front and hind with a, with a shoe that's going to weigh about five or six times more. So there's checks and balances we have to do. Um, and, and vice versa, we may have a jumper uh, that, that they're going to change it's going to go into a dressage barn or they're going to donate it to a university or something you have to make sure that that is the goal of the entire barn before you make that choice we have such a system in our business it's so well organized that most of the time my help especially my son and and mr kevin strain they're thinking ahead of me they already know. They've already had some communication while I was trimming, maybe, in a change. They may know that a horse is, uh, you know, he's not gone as good to the left. So if he's not gone as good to the left, he's having a hard time. Maybe he's not dead lead at going to the left. They'll already get that shoe, the proper shoe, double-check with me, and they'll start to put some mechanics into that lateral toe on that shoe to make it easier for that horse to do it. It's my job where I'm at trimming the horse to make sure that I've got it balanced and he's not got a long lateral toe. So there's checks and balances we do at the truck in our organization to make sure it's correct. Because there's nothing worse than to shoe the wrong horse or put the wrong shoe on the right horse. <laughs> As a final question, I'm, I'm curious on, you know, you're dealing with uh, high-end horses, which will often, you know, Clients are very demanding. They they expect service in the case of an emergency, and to whatever their emergency in their mind could be, they want you to drop everything and and go. You know, you're on the road right now. There's a lot of travel involved and and quick decisions where you're you're trying to deal with horses between flights. Uh, how do you manage that stress? How how do you uh, uh, overcome that that pressure? Well, the best way to manage is, is never to put yourself in that position. 
<laughs> I mean that in a good way. <laughs> in all honesty, it, if I was to ever change anything, and I and I say this more at the clinics that I do now than ever, if I could go back and do it all again on the horseshoeing part, I would have probably stayed home and had a good business close to my own. I would have focused on being a better business person at home, made the most money out of the horses that were close to me, and had a, a even a better balance with family. However, now at the level that I'm at, it's the stress is always there, but managing it is is pretty simple for me. I have good clients that I've communicated with. They know that I have at least one or two other people involved uh, and other farriers. I, I, I work very closely with 21 other farriers in North America who take a lot of our business in the summer. Uh, if they're leaving and they bought a horse at the last minute, they're taking it home, I sell them. Don't worry about it. It's not a, not a big issue. Bobby Minker is in Lexington, and he's going to take care of it. There is stress, and the stress is always there. But if you have your bases covered, it's not near as bad as what you think that it is. The stress is self-inflicted for me right now because I'm on the downside. I tell everybody jokingly I'm a has-been. I've been, I've <laughs> went up the ladder, and, and I've, I've achieved almost everything that I would like to achieve in the show horse world, but I'm going down. And maybe it's because I'm here and have, and have had some success that stress doesn't bother me as much. I think if you're a good planner and you're very organized and your clients trust the people that work for you, the stress is less. There's always going to be stress. There's always going to be last-minute decisions. There's always Tuesdays. But if you're prepared for it and you deal with it in a very rational way, in a positive tone, it is what you make of it. And I'm very, very, very blessed. And I'm very serious when I say, I think the person that's at home doing the backyard horses or the western horses or the driving horses, whatever he's doing, or she, if you would put more emphasis into developing that business to be as good as it can be, educate, educate your clients that you need to keep up with the cost of living and the cost of your products that go up, I think you can have a more balanced, less stressed life by doing that. Well, there you have it from one of the most helpful farriers out there. I always enjoy speaking with Dave and thank him for taking the time to talk to us. I'd also like to thank VetTech for sponsoring this episode, and you can learn more about their products at VetTech.com. If you have any suggestions or farriers you'd like to see us interview, post your message to our podcast section at AmericanFarriers.com slash podcast. Until next time, thanks for listening.